Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. She is Stephanie McNeil. It is Wednesday, friends, and you are watching AM to DM. Okay, so to get started, shout out to you. You've <laughs> been on you. a journey. It has been a journey of a lot of not pleasant things okay. happening to me <laughs> over the past few days. You yeah. know, it was my birthday over the weekend. Oh, my brother and sister-in-law came out. We had okay. a great time. And then I was running errands on Monday. I grabbed a salad and got food poisoning yesterday. So Green's I won't say where fast. I was from. Oh, but oh, that's nice of you. Yeah, yeah. That's you nice know, I'm you. keeping it to myself. You wield the power of your platform responsibly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, but yeah. it was it was rough. I really wanted to be here with you guys yesterday, but wasn't in the cards. Well, so how are you feeling? Can you give me a letter grade? Or? I would give myself a solid like C plus where like okay. this is definitely not the best I've ever felt at work. Okay. Um, but I'm not going to like die. Okay. So let's celebrate I'm that. For tomorrow I'll be at a B plus. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for coming in because of course I missed you guys and I yeah. heard David did a great job. David's wonderful, of yeah. course. But yeah, but listen, hosting a show is no easy gig, especially when you're like, you know, praying for your stomach to be on your side. So <laughs> shout out to you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, here, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. Tallahassee Mayor Andrew Gillum has staged an upset in Florida's Democratic primary for governor. Darren Sands, who has been covering Gillum's race for BuzzFeed News, had this to say, this won't be the end of the story now that he's won the nomination, but Gillum pulled the Florida Democratic Party to the left on the Stand Your Ground repeal. Darren Sands joins us now. Hey, Darren. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good morning. How you doing? Pretty good. Good. So you cool. tweeted this before Floridians headed to the polls. If Andrew Gillum is Florida's Democratic nominee for governor come tomorrow night, he'll have done it with a bold, black, and super progressive style of politics in a purple state with massive political implications for 2018 and 2020. And I spent this morning reading your great piece about Andrew. So can you tell us a little bit more about him and his style? Yeah, um, Andrew is a young, um, progressive um, uh, out of Florida. He's a, the Tallahassee mayor. And uh, what he's done is basically leverage um, a very uh, sort of progressive style of politics. Um, he wants a $15 minimum wage. Um, he supports uh, an impeachment of Trump. Um, he started saying that sort of on the campaign trail. He um, uh, wants to restore, um, he's, the amendment for actually is, 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 a, is a, a, an amendment on that's going to be on the ballot come November. That actually um, is going to uh, re-enfranchise. I think it's 1.5 million voters, um, and so he supports all these things. He ran on them, um, but he also ran specifically to um, uh, sort of identify himself as you know uh, a striver, someone who um, you know grew up poor in Miami Dade, moved to Gainesville, Florida. Um, you know, was a was an achiever. It was someone who used the public education that he got to um, uh, to advance himself, and so uh, he won last night. And I think it's um, you know reflective of what we're seeing nationally, which is these progressives, um, sort of the new left, really um, uh, making waves by being unapologetic 
uh, and, and running in a way that is going to endear themselves to voters who, um, you know, might, might be sort of, dis- you know, disenchanted with the process. Sure. Unapologetic certainly makes me think of um, Ocasio-Cortez's yeah, I was primary just thinking, win. They all share a lot of DNA, it seems. Absolutely. So to that point, as you mentioned, he is a striver. This was a crowded Democratic primary. And I noticed there seemed to be quite a gap in fundraising. Uh, how did that figure into this? And, and how did he break through? Yeah, I mean, um, at the beginning, he didn't have any money. <laughs> um, and so I think that that was one of the things that um, was was a little bit of an inhibitor early. A lot of people, you know, in Florida, it's very expensive to run, especially in South Florida, where you need to get a ton of votes. He eventually got the votes that he needed, but it's very um, expensive to get your message out, especially on TV in South Florida, especially Miami. So it's an expensive thing to do, which it was very easy for a lot of his opponents to do. Um, he made a point over and over again in the race that he was the only non-millionaire running in that race out of you know Chris King, Phil Levine, Gwen Graham, and Jeff Green. And so he was able to overcome that eventually, but it was a little bit of a, you know, um, a problem in the beginning. What happened was, um, there was lots of small dollar fundraising. He eventually, really in the last week of the campaign, got a, a cash infusion of about, I think it was like $2 million. And so that helped them get their message out um, in South Florida, especially to get on TV. But it also helped them sort of do some good um, uh, you know, voter outreach, voter contact in some of these areas. And so I think you know, the entire strategy was based on him surging at the end sort of being able to um, get enough momentum so where right around the time that Bernie Sanders comes to Florida, they they had enough in place that they were able to actually, you know, use some of that momentum uh, and, and and have enough, um, you know, cash at the end to get the wrapped bus that they had. I went by, a, this is a sort of a, a short story, but um, I was riding uh, on the bus for my story and there was a, a, a a bunch of uh, truckers, these three black guys in a truck going nuts on the highway with this bus, right? And so, like, that's the kind of thing that you need need to be able to do uh, to get your message out in the campaign. But um, it, it's been fascinating to see it unfold. Certainly. That's so fascinating. You think he's the only non-millionaire running. I mean, imagine, like, yeah. how far behind he was even starting all the way back from not having that personal wealth. Absolutely. Um, another point that you mentioned in your story, which I thought was super funny, was you discussed his campaign going to a college campus and the um, the volunteers were kind of trying to like get in with the kids and they weren't really reacting to the message. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, it's this uh, kind of scene in this story. It's a, it's a school in Jacksonville called Edward, Edward Waters College. And, um, you know, when Andrew visited, there was a lot of the sort of the, uh, the progressives ready to see him, white progressives, too, um, who had gone to see him and were like get, sort of like, you know, there was this like sign waving event that they had. That was how they branded it. Um, and I think there were a lot of there were some administrators on campus who were like kind of uncomfortable. They didn't really know um you know, how the, the other campaigns were going to react. It actually turns out that the other campaigns have reached out because if you think about it, you know, if you're trying to, you know, get votes in Jacksonville, you're, you're, you're where he actually did extremely well, right? But they were, you know, and they were a little bit 
you know, I think intimidated by Andrew's candidacy in Jacksonville. And so he gets on campus um, and there was just a little bit of tension. I think that um, one of the things that Andrew ran into a lot is that, you know, people asking this question of whether he can win and whether he can actually do it. And that's something that I think young black candidates especially face, even with, you know, with black voters in particular, because there's this hesitation that maybe I'm wasting my vote. Um, and so that that exchange in particular, I think, sort of illustrated how, you know, white progressives, when talking to young black voters, which is something that they know they need to do, um, it can be a little bit weird. And sometimes the organizers don't know exactly how to talk to them. And I think if you if you read that story, you understand how you'll see how sort of Andrew um, was able to circumvent that with his own message. And I think that's going to be something that's going to be so key in the general is like, he's going to actually be his own best, you know, messenger sometimes. Um, I think a lot of national Democrats also are going to, you know, really trying to be best friends with Andrew at this point, because um, Florida is such an important state. Um, but it, it's going to be interesting to see how that sort of um, tension plays out. Well, as you mentioned, uh, Darren, this is just part of the story. Um, we have to begin to look forward towards November. Here's a tweet, and I don't even know if you've seen this moment yet. This is a tweet from Steve Morris. Uh, he caught this from a Fox News moment. Uh, Ron DeSantis, who uh, Gillum is going to be running against in November for this governorship, just said Florida should not, quote, monkey this up by electing Andrew Gillum. Uh, mucky this up by voting for the black candidate. So uh, who is DeSantis? And is this kind of comment in line with what we might see uh, come to expect uh, towards November? Yeah, um, that's crazy. Um, I had not seen that, Saeed, so thank you. Um, breaking news. I think, you know, look, they are going to uh, rile their base. Um, they're not going to apologize for it either. I think that's what you see coming out of the Trump administration. Um, there's, uh, you know, a, very, a willingness to um, engage politically using dog whistles, um, using language that, you know, isn't going to um, uh, get, you know, folks uh, very enthusiastic about um, sort of supporting you know, the, their campaign. Even I think there are Republicans who are who are you know thinking about some of the language and, and what uh, Trump has said and, and and already what Ron DeSantis is saying. He's uh, you know um, from Jacksonville, you know, which has some very conservative areas. He's a a congressman who um, you know Trump came out and supported I think he's sort of out of the blue there and knowing that it's a very important state for him come you know re-election time um, and so you know I think it's going to be very very interesting to see this contrast between you know um, you know uh, uh, Andrew as someone who's running as a, a, a very strong progressive running to you know turn out young voters voters of color um, and seeing how Ron DeSantis is going to rile his base and excite people. The, the problem that Andrew has right now is that much more Republicans voted in this election. And so, you know, even though that's true, that far more voters, uh, Republican voters voted in this election, there are two things sort of have to happen and sort of in, in, in concert, which is that Andrew has to get more people excited about his candidacy, like I said, like young voters, black voters, voters of color, Hispanic voters even. And what DeSantis is gonna wanna do is drive up those numbers, but 
it's going to be interesting just based on that tweet to see how many Republicans are actually turned off by what um, he's doing and just don't turn out to vote. So um, we'll be interesting to maybe even, you know, talk to Adam Putnam to see what he thinks about that. Absolutely. Well, as always, Darren, thank you for joining us this morning. Sure. Thanks, guys. Good morning. Feel better. <laughs> thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, Michael Ian Black dived in on Twitter about Louis C.K.'s surprise performance, tweeting, We'll take hate for this, but people have to be allowed to serve their time and move on with their lives. I don't know if it's been long enough or his career will recover or if people will have him back, but I am happy to see him try. This tweet from Kara Brown of the Keep It Podcast got 19,000 likes. It seems I missed the part when Louis C.K. served time. I just remember him living quietly as a millionaire for less than a year. Mm. Well, I know you guys talked about this yesterday, so it's... We did. And you know who talked about it more? Michael Ian Black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, I don't know. He didn't have to weigh in, but I guess now he's adding to the conversation and it he's... made it a day two story. Yeah, so. it seems, I will say to Michael Ian Black, seemed to be thoughtful and willing to engage. He wrote a blog post about it, but... Whew, what a conversation. What and a I mean, it is the next, I guess, iteration of the Me Too movement is what is going to happen to people when they start to come right. back. Absolutely. You know, I guess that's where we're at. Absolutely. Well, here's a tweet from Jessica Valenti. No redemption without recompensate. Recompense. Ah, so close. It's a hard word. <laughs> recompense. Recompense is a word we are all learning on set. Recompense. Yeah, the recompense. <laughs> well, to that point, Jessica Valenti, author of the memoir Sex Object, joins us now. Jessica, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. We're so happy you're able to join us. Um, how would you define recompense in the context of Louis C.K.'s situation? I mean, it's something more than what he's been doing, hmm. right? There's There's been this conversation, and Michael Ian Black sort of started it, about, well, what can he do? What, what would be an appropriate response? It's not sitting around, as Kara said, on your millions for less than a year. Um, we haven't seen anything outside of a, a sort of like press release apology. We haven't seen him sort of reach out to his victims as far as we know. And really none of the famous rich men who've been accused of wrongdoing have done anything like that, right? Like, have they volunteered at rain? Have they given money? Have they dedicated, you know, just a small portion of their immense wealth and platform to this issue? There's been none of that. So until we see something like that, I'm not really interested in, in having a conversation about redemption. Okay. It seems like only yesterday this story broke. I know the news cycle, you know, is very overturning. But I mean, I, I thought it was only a few months ago. It turns out it was about six. Were you surprised to hear that he had returned to stand up? No, not at all, right? Like we've been seeing this with Matt Lauer or with Charlie Rose. All of these guys are sort of peeking their their heads out to, to see what the response is going to be. And unfortunately, the response has been really positive for them, right? The New York Times piece that, that covered Louis C.K.'s sat last night or the night before last said that even before he started, people were applauding for him, right? So I think that they have a pretty good sense that that they're going to have a good response to them to them coming back. And that's on us. And I think that that's what's been most upsetting about this. We can't really control if abusive men come back into the limelight. We can control if we give them attention, if we give them our money, if we give them our applause. Yeah, let's talk about that attention. I also want to note that that New York Times story you referred to used the word allegations in the headline, even yes. though he's admitted. He's yeah, admitted, he admitted what he did to he these He admitted five women. every single thing as yeah. well. It's yeah. not like he just generally admitted Absolutely. it. You know yeah. what I mean? So they're not allegations. Yeah. But things that happened. Right. 
Yeah. There's so, been a lot of passive language, you know, even when uh, Michael Ian Black tweeted, uh, you know, the men caught up in this movement, right? Like the men brought down by me too. Right. Like it's all very passive. No, these men made decisions mm -hmm. and brought themselves down. Right. right. Victims are the ones who have been caught up. So let's talk about Michael Ian Black. Um, I, I was just saying, right. you know, I, I felt that he was uh, gesturing towards nuance and in trying to have, you know, a, yeah. a thoughtful conversation. You engaged him. Did you find the conversation with Michael Ian Black, either with you or other people, productive in some? No. Um, I understand what he's trying to do. You know, he's he's in the middle of writing a book about masculinity, so I get it. I get why there's this interest in having a conversation about the way back for men um, who have, you know, committed abusive behavior. But I don't understand why we're so concerned about a way back for men than we are a way forward for their victims, mm. right? Women who have accused powerful men of wrongdoing can't even be on social media, right? Like they're shutting down their Instagram and, and Twitter accounts, let alone being on stage. So until we really address all of the women who have been driven out of, of professions, entire industries, really, um, I don't see why this needs to be our priority. Mm. And like you mentioned, it's not like we have seen this big redemptive arc from Louis C.K. Actually, he's been completely silent except for his initial statement, and he hasn't come out to say anything since this all happened. He just did a set and hasn't spoken. So why do you think so many people are so quick to defend him? I think we're all complicit in it in this way. And it's, you know, it's really difficult because this is the way that abusers get away with, you know, their, their bad behavior again and again. Most studies show that like the number, the percentage of, you know, rapists, harassers, abusive men is actually very small. But the reason that so many women are harassed, raped, abused is that we let that, that small percentage of men get away with it again and again by applauding them, by making sure they stay in their jobs, by protecting them. Um, and I, I think sometimes it's just easier to believe that like our faves are, are okay or, you know, we don't want to stop listening to their work. We don't want to stop going to their movies. It's a, it's a sacrifice, but I think it's a sacrifice that we have to be willing to, to make. Mm. Well, you know, Rebecca Traister, of course, wrote a wonderful piece about this. You've been engaging this conversation. Here's a tweet from someone else who has as well, Roxanne Gay. She tweeted, we are never going to make progress if we cannot, if we cannot hold Aziz Ansari accountable without mm. lumping him in with guys like Matt Lauer and Louis C.K. We cannot flatten these issues and experiences. Take an extra fucking tweet to use some nuance. That's great advice. Um, and I saw a lot of this. I saw a lot of Aziz Ansari kind of being lumped in. Um, how do we do this in practice? Because it does seem like the, the waters keep getting kind of muddied in these conversations. Yeah, it is really hard. And I think, you know, in the age of like the clickbaity headline, it's it's very tempting to, to flatten these issues. I think, you know, from a from my perspective, the best thing that we can do is sort of a survivor led approach. Let's listen to the people who've actually been affected by these issues, whether it's, you know, the woman who who talked about Louis C.K., the woman who talked about Ansari, and use their words and their experiences to sort of guide us. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and maybe if you don't feel like you can properly address the nuance in a tweet, don't tweet about it. Maybe it's not the You don't need medium. to say anything. Yeah, you don't have to tweet. Silence. It's free. free. It is, look, <laughs> all right now. Jessica, thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, with that combo in mind, here's a tweet from Padma Lakshmi. Some people off the top of my head who are funnier than Louis C.K. and haven't harassed women. Aparna Narncharla, Nicole Byer, Phoebe Robinson, Jessica Williams, Hassan Minaj, and many other great 
people. Yeah, and she goes on and on. I mean, we can't even name all this. Yeah. She also shouts out to shout out to Chelsea Peretti, um, Ali Wong, who are um, some funny people that you want to highlight. Well, she mentioned Nicole Byer, and I love Nicole Byer. I just started following her on Twitter because mm-hmm. I I would like to say I'm an early stan of Nailed It. I've been telling everyone about mm-hmm. Nailed It for months. Yeah, it's like my go-to like treadmill slash like cleaning show that I just turn on when I want to like be happy. It's so so Nicole, if you want to go on the sh- come on the show and like I will definitely Nailed It as yeah. all of Didn't our viewers you, know. You tried to get on Nailed It. Yeah, yeah. I have a friend who works at Netflix, and she was like, oh, if you want to get on, just email. So I emailed, but they're not casting right now. But maybe someday. I'm really bad at baking, Nicole, so. That's true. You should come on the show. Come on. I don't even own a cookie tray. Okay. Um, I want to shout out Crystal West. First of all, you know, she was like in the Golden Globe nominated uh, episode of Drunk History. She's incredible on the read. Just wonderful. And she hasn't harassed anyone. So there's just, there's so many people who are so funny mm-hmm. that it's like, I don't know. I don't know why people keep getting chance after chance. We know why. We That's know true. why. That's true. We know. Here's the tea. But let's take it to the timeline and keep it going. Inspired by Padma Lashmi's wonderful recommendation, she should run the comedy cellar, to be honest. Uh, shout out to some of your favorite comedians or just generally funny people using the hashtag AM to DM. Let them know. We want to follow these folks. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. We would definitely want to have them on our radar. Well, here's a tweet from our head of breaking news, Tom Namako. I've done this thread before, and well, it's time to do it again. The government of Puerto Rico misled everyone. Trump did the same. Today, Puerto Rico officials admitted 2,975 people died after Hurricane Maria, up from 64. These are Americans. Tom continued, the Puerto Rican government was forced into doing the study that increased the death toll because of the relentless work of journalists initially in uh, Nitty Prakash and Puerto Rico's Center for Investigative Journalism, who waved the red flag in Maria's aftermath that the death toll was undercounted. Uh, our own Nitty Prakash has been reporting on the death toll since last September. She's a year into this important story. She joins us now. Nitty, good morning. Morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us from DC. Okay, so what is it like as a reporter? Again, you've been reporting on this since September, uh, and you finally have had your reporting validated. What does that feel like? So obviously this has been a long time coming and, you know, there have been a couple of other studies that have kind of headed in this direction before. And every time we see these numbers, it's kind of devastating because, I mean, as much as it is a relief to see that situation on the ground that we were seeing sort of uh, acknowledged officially, you know, these are all individuals, these are all people whose families have lost someone. And I think of all the people that I spoke to over time whose grief has been compounded by not feeling seen and not feeling counted. So for those of us who maybe or viewers who may have not been following this story, why was it that the death toll was so undercounted for about almost a year? So basically, Steph, it was a case of the government not really having a system where people knew how to count deaths or even what to count as a hurricane-related death or just a regular, you know, someone who would have passed away anyway in the course of things. Um, So there was a lot of confusion and, you know, that was pretty clear to me immediately on the ground. Um, I was there, I think, about a week and a half after the hurricane hit and just from talking to people in their communities, they were saying, you know, like, we know more people who have died than what's being counted in this toll. And then, you know, going to funeral home directors and talking to doctors, it was clear that they didn't really have any clear guidance on what they were supposed to do in this situation or how to record those people that they were seeing coming through. Um, Nidhi, what changed? Because again, you know, you and, and other journalists have been pointing out the discrepancy in numbers. Why did the government finally own up to it? 
You know, ultimately, Said, I think that it's just the building pressure. So uh, as Tom mentioned in his tweet there, myself and CPIPR raised this to the government pretty early on, you know, in the first two to three weeks after after things started happening there. Uh, I think that following that, there was more reporting, there was more pressure, and ultimately, it's something that the government just was kind of forced to acknowledge, especially as these other studies came out. Harvard also published another study a couple of months ago where they put the toll at uh, several thousand as well. So with all of those things coming out, it was something that was unavoidable to address in a way, I think. Hmm. So like we mentioned, it's been about a year since the hurricane uh, hit. What still needs to be done to help Puerto Rico recover? And if someone is watching this broadcast, what is something that we here in mainland America can do to support these victims? So I think there are a couple of things. I mean, at the moment, they have said that they've restored power to all of the island, but that is still pretty flimsy. I know that some of the families that I know there had power restored, and then, you know, there were heavy rains one weekend, and they lost it again for a week. So that situation is something that really needs to be addressed pretty urgently still to build an electric grid that's going to stand up to, you know, heavy rainfall or even, you know, God forbid, another major storm that could come through. Um, but aside from that, there are still people living there who have tops over their roofs, don't have real roofs yet, who have blue tops and they've been living like that for nearly a year now. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think even just like basic level people being able to repair their homes, uh, having access to those resources to do those things. And I think in terms of helping out, there are a lot of Puerto Ricans on the ground who have set up their own organizations. That's something that people could look into. Um, but other than that, I think it's super important that people just keep paying attention to what's happening there because uh, it's not going away in a hurry. Not yeah. Away. And Nitty, you've been covering this since, like you said, the very beginning. And um, we really hope that you keep this issue in, on our radars because it's definitely a huge, huge deal. I mean, Absolutely. you can't imagine not having electricity for an entire year. It's, Absolutely. it's insane. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Nitty. Right. Thank you, Nitty. And, uh, thank you. And we do want to point out that today is uh, the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just off the coast of New Orleans on August 29th, uh, 2005. So again, it's just, just keeps coming in and we still have so much work to do. Well, friends, uh, stick around later in the show. Stephanie sits down with Dave Pilkey, the creator of Captain Underpants. I so excited. An icon, literally. Uh, up next, though, it's time for Fire Tweets. <laughs> Man, we are back. Um, we are back. Here's the thing. I'll say this about uh, DeSantis and the what? Don't monkey it up. I saw someone tweet like, "It begins." Of course, it's going to start like this. I mean, it's, going into the Florida it's election. It's so shocking, but it's not. I feel like our capacity for being shocked is so much low, lower now, or maybe I don't know. Like, you're right. It just feel like. You know, I, we hear something like that and we're all just kind of like, wow, but also mm -hmm. it's kind of par for the course at this point, totally. unfortunately. It's and I don't know sucks. what to do with that. I don't know what yeah. to do with the fact that I'm not surprised. I know, because, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. It just it just sucks. Well, let's burn it down with these tweets. <laughs> let's just focus on something a little more I like pleasant. it. A little levity. Okay. Cod on the hot rocks. Again, I don't know how people come up with these names. <laughs> Why do so many people on here think someone watching your Instagram story means anything more than they were bored on the toilet? This is so real. Oh, wow. I'm, are you an Instagram story, like, watcher, watcher? Yes. Okay. I know who's watching. I know how frequently you look. I never, ever look at that. But 
But you also like happily married. Yeah, I mean, no, no, but what I'm saying is my husband does. He's like, oh, "Oh, did you see so-and-so? Look, didn't look at your Instagram story, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no. That's so funny. Yeah, I don't know. Well, let us know. Tweet us if you're... He's more petty than me. That's funny. Tweet us your, your Instagram story, you know, philosophy. How deep you are in. Okay, this tweet comes from Maddie Holden. I can't stand small talk. Oh my God, people who brag about that. Uh, thank God for you, for mavericks like you, marching to the beat of your own drum and refusing to be boxed in, you fascinating bastard. The rest of us make polite chit chat with our coworkers for the sheer love of it, but you, you are something else. You put a lot of feeling into that. I have a lot. I, I hate people who brag about like not being into small, no one likes small talk. Yeah, like, use alert. <laughs> I like, does anyone like going to these like networking events where you talk about like, I don't know, your dog or yeah, something? It is a, an essential social function, social lubricant that we all use. But to what if get it wasn't? What if millennials, we just like stopped having any small talk or like networking events? Do you think that would go over well? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Well, there'd be thousands of op-eds and hot takes about how we don't, you know, how we're not polite enough That's or whatever. That's true. Yeah. That's true. We kill everything. Lose, lose. Necessary. All right. <laughs> On white. Is there any greater intimacy than when you're both in the Google Doc at the same time? Ooh, it is kind of exciting. I don't it know. It makes me nervous. Like, when I'm in there and I'm like, oh, they're in there too, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Yeah, as an, when I was editing and, and, and the cultural editor here at BuzzFeed, I, I would like yell at right, like get out. Cause I can't, I can't concentrate. Like, I, cause you know, you're trying to write like a, a nuanced diplomatic way to say this sentence is trash. Well, yeah, it's um, true. And then you're sitting I, there, they're watching you write it. As an editor, <laughs> I have had, you know, like one of my reporters in the uh-huh. doc and I'm like, oh, I feel bad, I'm like cutting full paragraphs. Mm-hmm, like, sorry, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I've had writers start trying to argue with me while I'm like, oh You're God, not no. This, so. no, 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 no. That, that is that. intimacy, but I don't want that kind of intimacy. That's Nothing. a lot, that's a lot. Okay, this tweet comes from the wonderful Katie Henney, reader books, reader writing. <laughs> there must be some way for TV writers, some other way for TV writers to let viewers know a woman detective, reporter, superhero is tough. Besides having her drink whiskey from the bottle at odd hours of the day. <laughs> this is definitely true for journalists, like sharp yeah. objects. Like the amount that she is drinking, I watched the show and I, I mean, I get that she's supposed to be like an mm-hmm. alcoholic or whatever, but I'm like, how is she like funk? She's just like driving She's driving car, a lot. Like sipping on a bottle mm-hmm. of Smirnoff. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah. really? I only watch, this is my own issue. I watched the first episode in the last two because I got really curious. And I, is there a car crash at some point in the season? There's no uh, way she could drive because I mean. No, I'm not caught up. But yeah. I don't. I read the book. No. And there's it no was car weird. crash in the also, book. Also, like all journalists, women journalists sleeping with sources. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's the only way you can do it. Obviously, <laughs> I watch TV. That's what I learned. All right, are you ready for the tweet of the day? Sure, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> tweet of the day from Ashlyn. This is more more like tweet of the sadness. Mm. The DJ really said, "Where my 2000s babies at?" And the crowd went wild. That's when I knew it was time for me to go home. Okay, Saeed. So when was the time in your life, unless you haven't experienced it yet, where you were in like a bar or club and you realized I'm too old for this? Because for me, I was time like a few years ago. I was in a club mm-hmm. and I didn't know any of the mm-hmm. songs, and I everyone around me was dancing and singing along, and it was like I felt a little bit of horror, like. 
oh my God, like, hmm. I don't know any of these. That's funny. Um, I mean, anytime I watch the VMAs, I feel a little behind. I'll say yeah. this, and I tweeted about this when I went to the Panorama Festival to see Janet Jackson and SZA perform. Uh, I tweeted about the moment. And I am young and old enough to enjoy both Janet Jackson and SZA. But yeah, I was in line for the, yeah, yeah, I was in line for the restroom. And a younger guy was like peeing, and he started talking to me. Don't talk to me in the restroom. Um, starts talking to me, and he's with his friend. And he goes, are you here to see Janet Jackson? I was like, yeah. And he's like, how old are you? And I was like, 32. And he turns to his friend and says, see, I told you the old people love Janet Jackson. Rude, rude, how dare you? That's why I'm hosting the show and you aren't, kid. All right, (laughs) we can't go home yet. Thank you for the sound. We can't go home yet. There's a lot more show to do. Uh, We're going live from the district, Captain Underpants. So much to do, so much to do. It's all happening, old people. All right, welcome back, Queens. Uh, we're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News DC editor Sarah Mims. Uh, good morning, Sarah. Hey, guys. Good morning. Hi. Look at that fancy new set. I love it. I know. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It looks really great. Looks Super great. excited it about great it. On you. <laughs> fancy, fancy. Okay, Sarah, here's Thanks. a tweet from Axios. Sources tell Axios that White House canceled Don McGahn will step down this fall after Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed to the Supreme Court or after the midterms. So how significant is this, Sarah? So actually our legal editor, Chris Geidner, just ran over here and told me that the president has now tweeted confirming this news. So I guess that's happening. Was the president the source? Um, I mean, I'm sorry? Was the president the source for that Axios story? Oh, God. I mean, who knows? Probably. (laughs) Possibly. Uh, This White House is so full of leaks, it may as well be. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's significant in the sense that, like, this is yet another White House staffer who is leaving this administration. I've become increasingly convinced that Trump has, like, some kind of, like, stamp card. Like, you get at a sandwich shop, and every time you lose another staffer, like, on your 20th one, you get the next White House staffer for free. Um, But, like, Brett Kavanaugh... (laughs) Brett Kavanaugh is almost certainly going to be confirmed. We're going to get through the midterms, and that's when Don McGahn is going to leave. He's not leaving imminently. This doesn't seem to be a sign of any huge turmoil or anything else. He's been doing this job for two years, and this is a really hard job. He's had a really contentious relationship with Trump the whole time. So, yeah, it's kind of a big deal, but it's not really that surprising. Okay, um, and McGahn uh, has cooperated with the Mueller investigation. We've seen news about that. Will his leaving or planned exit have any uh, impact on that investigation? Oh, man, who's to say? Like, with anything in the Russia investigation, it's very much, like, wait and see, I suppose. Um, You know, there was that New York Times story about two weeks ago now saying that McGahn had been cooperating with Mueller, which we knew. You know, he's talking to them. A lot of White House folks are talking to them. Uh, The White House is making people available. What was interesting about that story, though, is McGahn appears to be talking about more than Trump expected him to be talking about. Um, Obviously, there's not really really a great relationship between the two of them right now. Um, I would assume that McGahn will continue talking to Mueller just as he has been already, and we'll see whether him leaving has any effect on that. 
Okay, well, let's spill the tea on Chuck Schumer because last night uh, Chuck Schumer yes. uh, and this deal was kind of taking over my timeline. Here's a tweet about it from Bloomberg's Sahil Kapoor: Democrats continue to bring a butter knife to a knife fight, says Brian Fallon, a former Schumer aide who now works with Demand Justice. He continues: It is hard to think of a more pathetic surrender heading into the Kavanaugh hearings. Okay, again, so strong words there from a former Schumer aide. I don't know what's going on between the two of them. But uh, <laughs> what exactly is this deal? Because again, there was a lot of talk and it's like, is this about the building? Is this about sending people home during recess? What's going on? Yeah, so the deal that Schumer made with McConnell yesterday was they confirmed seven federal judges and they're going to do another eight next week. Um, the left is furious about this. My timeline was full of that too. People saying that Schumer is capitulating, that Democrats need to grow a spine and really fight this kind of stuff. Um, Basically what's happening is like these deals actually do happen all the time. It's a little bit different now because we are in the resist era because Donald Trump is president and the, the left expects a lot more out of Democrats than they have in the past. They're paying a lot more attention than they have in the past. Um, basically what this is really about though is the election. Um, it's in November. Mitch McConnell canceled the usual August recess that members have to go home and campaign, especially during an election year that's hugely important. But he canceled it to fuck over Democrats. Um, Democrats are the party that is actually defending seats in the Senate. Mitch McConnell's Republican senators don't really need to go home, whereas some of these red state Democrats who are in really tough races have not been able to go home while they're opponents have been able to spend the entire month campaigning. They've been in Washington voting on not massively important stuff. So for Schumer, this was really important to give his members an opportunity to go home for at least a week and try to campaign. Hmm. So what are the implications of the deal besides, you know, giving them a time to go home? Like, I mean, is it really going to make an impact? I mean, here's the thing about it is like these judges were going to be confirmed anyway. That's what Democrats will tell you. And, and that's certainly true. They could have tried to block them. Uh, that would not have worked. Um, they could have tried to slow it down and they certainly could have done that. Um, but what we're talking about there is slowing it down for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. So the argument that they're making is Trump was going to have these judges. McConnell was going to get them through. There was nothing we could do about that. So why not allow our members to go home and campaign and hopefully take back the Senate so that we can do something about this in the future? What the left is arguing, and I think it's a fair point, is that these judges are going to be appointed and they are going to have lifetime uh, seats on these courts. Um, anything you can do to slow that down is at least a message. Interesting. So a rock and a hard place. They're caught between either trying to win in November or trying to fight a perhaps losing battle um, with these judges. Huh. Well. Right. Exactly. All right. Uh, Sarah, as always, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. All right, friends. Uh, up next, I speak with BuzzFeed News editor Tommy Obaro about code switching. Let me practice my white voice. <clears throat> Stay tuned, friends. Love that dress, Stephanie. <laughs> Okay, Boots Riley's new film, Sorry to Bother You, is great in many ways and for many crazy reasons, uh, but especially one of the details that I love is how it goes in on black people code switching in the workplace. So joining me now to talk about code switching is BuzzFeed editor Tomi Obaro. Hello. Hi. Hi, hi, hi. Okay, so 
we've worked together in the culture team and I, I'm excited to go in. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with Sorry to Bother You. We're going to talk about Insecure 2. Um, the main character, Cassius Green, which mm-hmm. does not seem like a coincidence, mm-hmm. um, is advised by um, an older coworker to use his literal white voice mm-hmm. uh, to find success as a telemarketer. Uh, for people who are still living in the year 1998, what is code switching? So code switching is basically changing the way that you talk depending Mm -hmm. on your context. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of people do it. It's not just a black or white thing. Absolutely. And I think it is fundamentally a neutral thing. Mm -hmm. It's just that often in the workplace, the onus is on people of color Mm -hmm. to change the way they talk to to communicate more readily or easily with their superiors who yeah. often tend to be white, unfortunately. Absolutely. Yeah, and I will say, we were just saying this during the break, we think about code switching in terms of accents, mm-hmm. southern accents, you know, Nigerian accents, uh, queerness, you know, are you going to talk about kikis and all of a sudden yeah, with your boss? Even if, like, the way that you talk to your grandmother probably isn't mm-hmm. the way that you talk to your friend. All of know? a sudden, those curse words disappear. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's nuance there, but it's, code switching in the workplace for people of color is definitely a thing. Absolutely. Sure. And with stakes, I would argue, so in Insecure, just like on um, Sorry to Bother You, there's, there's a scene in both seasons, actually, um, with Molly. Uh, in season one, she's talking to a black lawyer, and she says, um, if you want to be successful here, you've got to know when to switch it up a bit. And that moment is, and there we go, is, uh, is tense, because they have two different reads on, on that. Um, why do some people, in that case Molly, feel that uh, code switching is, is necessary, perhaps, to get ahead or even to just survive? in a workplace. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely depends on context. Mm. You know, Molly is a high-power lawyer, like, especially in white-collar fields, there is still this idea that maybe a lot of people don't think that I deserve to be here at all. Mm. And so I have to, like, impress them by showing them, like, how, you know, articulately I, you know, I sound or how, how readily I can communicate in a way that, like, old white men can understand and appreciate. Absolutely. And it's unfortunately a thing that I think a lot of people, especially in professional contexts, have mm-hmm. to deal with. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, working on my memoir about growing up in Texas, I mean, I code switch gender. Like, I remember, like, trying to learn mm-hmm. unsuccessfully how to code switch with talking with, like, the football players mm-hmm. and guys who were more masculine presenting and messing up mm-hmm. um, and the stakes of that. And that often led to, like, getting bullied and kind of cast out. So it, it is a way of, of reframing your diet like the way you talk, but what are other examples of of code switching that may not involve like how we speak? Mm. So back when I had hair, I used to be We're living for the short hair, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Um, But, you know, so like in in an old workplace, I was the only black um, person on staff at at a magazine in Chicago. And so I used to be really conscious about changing my hairstyle and like knowing knowing that it would prompt comments and questions. Mm -hmm. Some of them often well-meaning, but just being aware of like, if I get box braids, people are going to, did your hair grow overnight? Or like, Mm -hmm. you know, questions about presentation that often made me feel just aware of my blackness totally. in a way that I wouldn't necessarily be if, if I had had more black coworkers. Absolutely. I think a lot about, uh, in terms of code switching, like facial uh, expressions and natural mm-hmm. reactions, mm-hmm. perhaps to fuckery, <laughs> you know, and, and in perhaps in some contexts, like yeah. keeping a placid da da da, and other contexts going, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and knowing when you feel like you can do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, as we're saying, there's a lot of work. So here's some tweets about this. Uh, Queen B, all right, Queen B, you tweeted, code switching is so draining. Mm-hmm. Uh, L- London Wheeler, you said, uh, I'm about to stop code switching at my job. It's exhausting. Um, and so th- this is 
very interesting. I, I think in some ways it feels empowering. Sometimes I code switch mm -hmm. to like let the white people in the moment know like this is an us conversation and mm -hmm. you are now a guest. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be, you know, a bit trying. Yeah. Why might it be exhausting for some people? I think it's a question of authenticity. Like if mm -hmm. you feel like you're constantly putting on a performance, mm -hmm. which in some ways code switching can be, mm -hmm. that can be draining. And sometimes you just want to talk the way you want to talk right. and you're not able to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you know, as you've mentioned, as a black woman working in media, you talked about being, you know, the only black woman um, at the magazine uh, in Chicago. Are there other times where you felt compelled to code switch or were conscious of it? Mm. I mean, I, not necessarily. I, like, as for me personally, code switching is complicated because I moved around so much mm. when I was young. And like, yeah. when I moved to America, I had an English accent. Okay. So I lost that really quickly. So I feel like I'm used to like... Okay, so you had a British English yeah, accent. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I, was yeah. Talking, I was talking like them. Um, <laughs> or whatever, one of our co-workers. Yeah. Um, but so I think for me personally, it's a little mm. bit different. It's mm -hmm. just more... Like the pressures of being a black woman in media, I think are more just about the things that I feel like I have to know in addition to like the things that the white people know. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and sometimes it's like a key, right? Like sometimes it's like code switching enough to kind of signal, mm -hmm. oh, okay, he can handle this conversation and then you kind of get the confidence mm -hmm. um, that like Molly I think is alluding to, like it sometimes. Yeah. Um, well, uh, here's another tweet. Um, <laughs> Jay, you tweeted, got my manager saying bet and say less. Code switching just became easier. I thought only people in Newark said uh, bet. But why is uh, code switching still necessary or even just, you know, loaded when black culture is seemingly so popular? Yeah, I mean, I would also say, again, I think it has to do with context. Mm -hmm. So I think, like, in our field of work, especially at a place like BuzzFeed, mm -hmm news, it feels like we don't have to do it as much. Mm -hmm. um, someone like Ryan Coogler, who's the director of Black Panther and directed right. Creed and is this really acclaimed film director, has like this really thick Oakland accent. Mm -hmm. He does not code switch and mm -hmm. it's very like, okay, he's here. Mm -hmm. um, but then for other people still, especially again in white collar professions, in medicine, in law, where black people in general aren't taking it seriously, right. you have to communicate that I deserve to be here. I have the gravitas. I can, you know, I'm in charge. And unfortunately, we still have to think about the, the way of communicating like through using like you know white language i mm -hmm. guess yeah. if there is such a thing absolutely it's, it's it's really interesting my rule is always i stop worrying about code switching when i see enough black people in the office mm -hmm. that i don't know you know when you see black strangers in the office you're like okay good we, it's not just like the five of us anymore yes. all right we're just gonna be ourselves Amen. anyway well tommy shout out to you and all of your wonderful work thank an you. amazing essay from her about aretha franklin by the way you've oh, got to read that you. all right uh thank you for joining us tommy up next stephanie sits down with dave pilkey the author and illustrator creator of captain underpants excited for that conversation by Dave Pilkey, author and illustrator of the Captain Underpants book series and many more. His latest book is Dog Man, Lord of the Fleas. Dave, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Of course. So you've created incredibly popular children's book series. How do you tap into what kids love? How do you know what they're going to want to read? You know, uh, there's a part of me that just never stopped being a second grader. Uh, when, I was, when I was a kid, I was diagnosed with ADHD and, and dyslexia, and my teacher didn't know what to do with me, so she would just put me out in the hallway. And I wanted to have a connection with the kids in my classroom, so I would draw these comics and, draw, and make these uh, pictures and bring them in, and that's how I stayed connected to the, the kids around me. And I, I, I guess I just never lost that. So what made you want to take something you did as a child to make it your full-time career? 
Um, probably because I can't really do anything else. <laughs> I, I, I can draw and I can write and that's about it. So I had two brothers growing up mm -hmm. and we were talking, your first book came out in 97, so I was about eight. So my brothers, I think my mom bought the whole series <laughs> uh, of Captain Underhand's books and I read all of them because they were in the house. I was a big reader. I loved them, even though I was a girl. Do you see yourself writing mostly for boys or do you try to do it for boys and girls? You know, I think I'm really writing for myself, but I, I'm very conscious of, 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 ch of children in general. So I think it's for boys and girls. I think it's for everybody. Yeah, and you just mentioned that, you know, you, when you were a child, started with ADHD and dyslexia. Do you get parents of kids with those conditions coming up to you and asking you for advice, and what advice would you give them? I do get that a lot, um, especially like if I'm on the road uh, doing a tour or something, and the parents will often be very emotional, and, <laughs> and so there's lots of hugging going on. But I just tell them, you know, that the thing that my parents did for me was that they always really encouraged me. They always encouraged me to, to try to take any bad situation and try to find the good in it. And so that's what I try to tell them, just, just be a rock for your kids. Be there for your kids because they're going to have a hard time in school sometimes. It's nice to come home to a safe place. Do you see a difference in how you know how you were brought up with those conditions and how kids are treated now? Because I would, I people didn't have that kind of role model in, as they do in your books now back in the day. That's true, um, and, and I do see a big difference. There weren't a whole lot of resources, I think, for teachers back in those days. That's, that's why my teacher put me on the hallway. She didn't know how to deal with me. But I see a lot of teachers now, there's so many dedicated teachers now, and they, know, they really do have a better understanding of things like ADHD and autism and dyslexia and all the, all the challenges that kids have nowadays. And, and they really put so much of themselves into it. There, there's a lot of love in the classrooms now, and, and I think it's a good thing. You've been writing books for so many years now. Do you have any uh, tips for success in the publishing industry? How do you keep your ideas fresh for generations of children? You know, I think sometimes you have to just force yourself to do it. Um, like, I think a lot of times people will wait until they get the inspiration. Don't wait for inspiration. Just go for it because, um, so, you know, even if you spend the whole day writing or drawing and you come up with something that's not that good, it's better than doing nothing. Yeah, for sure. Well, you have flipperamas in your books, yeah. which are super cool. I remember reading them and flipping them. It's <laughs> very unique. So how did you learn to make these, and what, what inspired you to put them in your book, and how are they different than like your typical flip book? Okay, well, flipperamas, uh, I learned to do it when I was a kid. We were, my friends and I, would, we would make our own flipperamas all the time. We called them flip actions when I was a kid. Um, and so I, I kind of wanted to put them in the books because, because of my dyslexia, sometimes when I'm reading a book, it's fun to take a little break. And, and so the flipperamas give kids a chance to relax. And, and, you know, you're reading for a while, then you get to play with the book a little bit, and you do some animation. And the thing that makes it different than a regular flip book is that there's only two frames. There's only two things, and then you flip them back and forth, and it's like a one-two action, like a, a punch or a kick yeah, or jumping up Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. It'd be like Captain Underpants, like, kicks the robot in the face, yeah. and you would do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. So. My producers have been telling me that you brought a special Flip-O-Rama with you yeah. for AM to DM. Yes, I did. So yeah. can I see it? I don't sure, know what sure, it's about. sure, sure. Sure. Well, um, okay. I actually brought several. I, I came prepared today. Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is so exciting. Now, um, Saeed and and um, 
I know that that he and Isaac have a very special relationship. Yes. They're they're very very close. There, there's this bromance going on. I've been reading all about it. And so I wanted to uh, do something for Saeed and Isaac, uh, showing the love the, okay. and, the, and the romance. And, and so uh, can I just do it here? Is oh, that, yeah, yeah. Okay? Do it right, right here. Okay, do it right here. So this is a very romantic scene. Oh, my God. The two God, of them I together. A little swing. And if you, if you flip it like this, you kinda, that is you know, adorable. I mean, I can yeah. hear Saeed laughing in the background. They are going to love this. So there's, there's the two of them. Okay. Um, and then, let's see, we have another one. A little bit more romance for you. Um, this is a little canoe. And, oh, my God. And, this is so cute. <laughs> Saeed is paddling, and Isaac is, is singing a love song on his, on his guitar. And it kind of goes like this. There we go. Oh, my God. <laughs> It looks like them. It looks a lot like you guys. Say. Really, uh, I don't. I don't think I'm not really good at caricatures. But, oh my god, I love it. Um, and my new book, uh, my new series is Dog Man, and it's it's in a slightly different style. And I actually did one for you too. Oh my god. So this is Stephanie. See, it's a, it's a very simplified <laughs> style. So it doesn't, you know, it's very very simple because I, I want to show kids that everybody can draw, and so it's very very simple. Oops, that's the wrong one. I'm sorry. I, <laughs> okay. I I know that you used to. Um, you you used to work for Fox News. I did used to work for Fox News. So I, I had, you did your homework. I did, and I had one of you high fiving Donald Trump, but it doesn't work very well because his hands are so tiny. So, <laughs> let me let me see. Here's the one. Here's the good one. Okay. Oh my gosh. This is your, oh. your lovely cat Buffy, and oh this, my Buffy God. is such a sweetheart. Um, but the, my wife used to have a Persian cat, and she said they don't they don't move very much. They don't. So that's not real good for flip around. Or, you know, there's like they're not a whole lot of action. So this is you kissing Buffy, and then uh, oh Buffy. Oh my Buffy's god. Buffy's not. He's not. He's not moving at all. But oh you know, my god, it looks so much yeah. like her. <laughs> So oh my God, uh, that's this is amazing! That is for you if Thank like you so much. Sure. Oh my gosh, I would love it. Thank you so much. Of okay, so my producers also promised me that you could show me how to make this little drawing of Buffy because oh, everyone yeah. knows I'm obsessed with Buffy. So Buffy is a lovely cat. Thank it, you, thank you. We're a little looks, too obsessed with her. She looks like she might have some anger issues, though. No, do she does. That's a, that's a common misconception. Oh, she does okay, not okay. have any anger issues. Okay, okay. She just that's just her face. Okay. She has resting bitch face. Okay. <laughs> yeah. She has not been tested for a demonic possession or anything. Like that. Like, okay. No. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Well, see, I uh, I've been drawing Buffy. I've been practicing. I think oh that's one thing I tell kids to do all the time because they always like to draw. So I've been practicing and practicing. And so we could draw Buffy together if you'd like. Yeah. Just, yeah. Let's uh, just do put we it have here some so right. viewers can see it too. All right. So why don't you draw on this side, this half here, and take a sharpie, and I'll draw on this side. Okay. So. It's pretty simple. Um, you kind of want to draw like a, a half circle like this. So, um, and you want to make it nice and fluffy like that. So try try something like that. Our viewers know that I'm very, very bad at anything artistic. Well, you know, sometimes kids tell me that too. And I, I think that the, the secret is really just to practice. You have to practice all the time. Hey, you're getting it. Oh, yeah. Okay, right, that's okay. not that bad. That's all not right. that bad. So we're going to have two Buffies side by side. And, and this, all right, the second thing that I think is kind of important is to do this This kind of, it kind of looks like a butt there, but it's really just kind of like two two lines that kind of come up like that. Okay. Okay, good. I'm all not right. failing spectacularly. This, this, is, this is excellent. All right. Okay, then we put a little tiny nose. They have a little button nose like that. Okay, so we'll put a little nose there. Okay. 
good. Now we have to put the evil, I mean the, the uh, eyebrow. Wow, and wow. <laughs> They, but he has to sort of make it look evil. I know Buffy's a lovely, wonderful cat. She not, is. not evil at all, but she looks a little. So you have to kind of she, get that. You know, it, it's a cross that many women have to bear. <laughs> many strong women are told that they have resting bitch face, okay. and you know, she's just one of them. It's fine. <laughs> well, the one thing I think is interesting about Persian cats is that their eyes. Most cats, the nose is small, is lower than the eyes, but with Persians, their eyes and their nose are kind almost on the same level. So they're almost like eye, nose, eye, kind of on the same level like that. So very good. You're really good. I'm doing it. My, she's the, a little skinnier in the, my version. <laughs> <laughs> so you put that little eye thing there. And then Persians have this thing. I don't know why they, why they have that there, but there's the. It's because so. they were genetically bred by humans oh, to not, their eyes don't drain properly. It's oh, really I sad. Okay. I know. Well, that uh, kind of adds to their evil look, I guess. They're, yeah, that's they're, true. Okay, that's true. Right. Then we go up here like that and put a couple little little, little dots here like that. Mm -hmm. And then we can make her look extra angry by doing that. <laughs> and then a little ear here oh and a little gosh. ear there. You got it. That oh is really gosh, good. Oh my gosh, my baby. If you want, you can add some whiskers there. And then uh, I, know, I, I know that um, Buffy has some... She does She's like a, a tortoise shell, is that right? Was that, She's a calico. Calico, okay, calico. all right, okay. Yeah. So oh my gosh, and we like have that. a new little, oh my oh god. Oh yeah, and I, I did this for you as well. Oh my I just, god, I love it. Here, let's show the viewers. Come on, come on. Oh my god, I love it so much. I can't wait to show my husband. This is amazing. Thank you so much. Thank this you, This has Stephanie. been so fun. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, and Dogman, Lord of the Fleas, we have the book. It's out now. More AM to DM is up next. Okay, fall is almost here. I know that some of you are shook about that, but I get excited because September is a huge month for new books. Uh, so just because we're not headed back to school does not mean we cannot go to the bookstore and get some great reads. Uh, Sierra Velarde, BuzzFeed Books uh, newsletter editor, a lot of great newsletters come Thank from you. you. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, is here to walk us through some of the newest releases to check out. We got four great books to go into. Yep, super Okay, excited. now I love this because I stan Miss Sally Field. Oh, same. We love her. We really so do love much. her. So she has a memoir out yep. uh, called In Pieces. W what do we learn about her in this book? Yeah, so it, it goes obviously a lot into her time in showbiz. I mean, mm -hmm. we all know her as like Forrest Gump's mom right. and she played Mrs. Lincoln, like iconic yeah, roles. But I know, oh, I saw it for the first time Oof. a few weeks ago. Amazing. But, oh, and a beautiful photo. Oh, so good. Um, but yeah, no, the best part about it is that it goes a lot into her early childhood. Mm -hmm. And she was actually a very lonely, isolated, shy child. Mm -hmm. And I think the best parts of the book go into her complicated relationship with her mother. Okay. So, yeah, like, dives into that. You learn a lot about her. Like, even though we've seen her in such iconic roles, she's mm -hmm. won two Oscars, we don't really know a lot about her. Mm -hmm. At least I don't. So it's Absolutely. it's really great. I love memoirs in general. I tend to gravitate towards them, and this is, like, one of the most buzzed about for the year. Okay, so. and just between us girls, yes. we love a celebrity memoir. Is it well-written? Oh, yes. She's, okay. like, a natural okay. writer, honestly. <laughs> Good. Yes. I, she is an artist. Oh, yes. Okay. It, I just had to check, though. Yes, you the know. words come naturally Okay, shout-out to Sally Fields. Um, the next this one is The Wildlands by Abby Ginny. Uh, what is this about? Yeah, so this one is a thriller. It's very fast-paced. The um, 
everything goes by really fast, but yeah, there's a lot going on, but it starts with um, these four siblings who become orphans after a Category 5 tornado rips through their home. Oh, wow. And after that, one of the siblings kind of goes off on his own, but three years later, he comes back and has this passion to kind of save the animal kingdom. Hmm. He kind of recruits his younger Young sister to go on a cross-country adventure with him. And so this author is really known for kind of exploring the relationship between human nature and animal nature. Mm. And so this kind of all um, comes to a head at a zoo in Southern California. So I won't ruin the end, but it's a very fast-paced, fun read. I'm going to pick that up. I like that. I love the cover, too. Yeah, but, I was about to say. Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> we have to say a good cover. Oh, I, yeah. It doesn't hurt. Yeah. It doesn't hurt. At least it gave me to pick up the book off <laughs> the shelf. Um, you also recommend She Would Be King by Wayetu Moore. Tell me about by, by Wayetu Moore. So this one's um, a great one for anyone who loves magical realism. Okay. So it's kind of a retelling of the founding of Liberia, told mm. through um, three different characters who all are kind of bonded by the fact that they um, have some supernatural powers. Um, yeah. Sold. Yeah. No, it's really, really interesting, really cool. You, I've learned a lot about it through this retelling, and it's kind of a criticism of um, white supremacy and colonialism. So important read, but also like very interesting and fun at the same Sign time. Sign me. I know. Uh, <laughs> um, also, here's a tweet we have about our next book. Rose Mannering, you said, currently reading Transcription by Kate Atkinson uh, and didn't want my commute to end this morning. So great. And I got to say, friends, as a New Yorker, I know I'm into a book when I miss my subway stop. I've done that multiple times, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> so, so tell us about this book. Why is it so hard to put down? Yeah, this one's a great historical fiction book, okay. so I love picking up those all the time. Mm -hmm. But this kind of goes between two different storylines. Um, the main character, Juliet, gets recruited when she's 18 mm. to be a spy for in World War II. Okay. Yeah, and then it, the other storyline is 10 years later. She's kind of living a mundane life as a BBC producer. So the author kind of weaves through, and each storyline kind of informs the other. And, I mean, I haven't read a lot of books Mm -hmm. about women in World War II or the mm -hmm. Cold War, mm -hmm. especially not about women spies. Right. So it was very interesting to learn about like the espionage world, because a lot of the events she writes about obviously are true, but gives it kind of a fiction spin. For mm -hmm. And I love, so she's, she's a TV producer yeah. after being a, Alex Berg, one of our producers, I'm looking at you. I could totally see you being yeah. a spy in a past life anyway. Well, Sierra, I love all four of these books. Now yes. I've got to go get them. Uh, thank you for joining us thank this you so morning. Much. All right, friends, up next, Stephanie and I are going to respond to your tweets or more of your tweets. We're, you know, interactive is a thing. Anyway, thank you. Thanks. my little flipbook. That's so good. It looks so much like you guys. Cute. I mean, Isaac's still on vacation, so I get to play. Yeah. I'm gonna, we're going to frame this <laughs> in our really house. Pretty. It's so I'm incredibly great. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah. We Shout love it. Shout out to Dave Pilkey. All yeah. Right. Well, quite a morning. Uh, we, of course, talked about the official acknowledgement of Hurricane Maria's uh, death toll in Puerto Rico. Kirsten Baptiste shared this reaction. I had a former client and friend of mine die from the hurricane complications because he was not able to get his medications. I still can't believe that. It's really absurd. They are Americans. They are Americans. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad that this story is back in the news and hopefully it will continue to be in the news. Um, again, I just want to shout out to Nitty that mm -hmm. she really was there when no other national media the outlets were there. She was there for, I think, weeks at a time, maybe even a month. Um, mm -hmm. 
So we're re I'm really proud to be a colleague of hers. Absolutely, and I'm grateful for her work. And, and there's something about they are Americans, um, because I think that gets, I mean, like the uh, people in, in the city of Houston uh, impacted by a hurricane, you know, in that same, same time frame had a very different experience. Mm -hmm. And when I think of Hurricane Katrina, I think I remember Hurricane Katrina victims saying the same thing, like we yeah. are Americans, we yeah. are citizens. And so this idea of who gets to be saved, who is valued enough to be urgently protected, accounted for, um, it gets to the core, I think, of American values and how we engage that idea says everything about us. 100%. Also talking about Puerto Rico, Marty Vargas says, so very tragic and sad that this didn't get more attention and assistance at the time. I guess those tossed paper towels just weren't enough. Shameful. Oof. This is obviously referring to yeah. the famous photo of Donald Trump throwing paper towels to people in Puerto Rico. Um, yeah, it was it was a crazy time. I Just seeing the difference in coverage across the spectrum of Harvey and Maria, where Maria ended up being so much more devastating mm -hmm. in terms of body mm -hmm. count and in terms of mm -hmm. property damage than Harvey um, really kind of says it all. Absolutely. Uh, just, I'm just overwhelmed just, just thinking about it. I mean, I, I can't, I mean, because he also, I mean, the, the mayor of San Juan, when she was like asking for help and being very vocal, hello, look at what they were up against. Um, Donald Trump called her nasty. Like it's it's mm -hmm. just it just it just speaks to integrity or the lack thereof. Well, on a more positive note, um, we asked you for some of your favorite comedians. Uh, Princess Slaya says, uh, "I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong camera. That's your fault. It's my fault. I'm sorry, baby. I'm gonna look here. Uh, I am not into stand-up comedy like that, but I do find Chelsea Peretti, yes, Chelsea, uh, to be freaking hilarious. Stand up on Twitter on Brooklyn Nine Nine. Just all of it." I you know she's Chelsea good when, you know, she's our really, boss is her sibling, and we're still just saying, he's not paying us to say that. She's so good. A few years ago, I don't know why he agreed to do this, but uh, Jonah, the CEO of BuzzFeed, did like, a, like an all-hands company talk, and Chelsea interviewed him. Um, well, as that must have been before. Yeah, it might have been before you that. started. And Chelsea's his older sister. Um, and it was just incredible watching our CEO just totally get ribbed and kind of decimated by his sister. I mean, that's so the funny. dream, right? Like, yeah. I'm an older sister. I would love to yeah, just like, you know, good. it's like, okay, your little brother has CEO <laughs> of this company. It's so good. And Jonah is pretty funny himself, too. Yeah. But shout out to Chelsea, man. Yeah. Well, thank you to our guests, Dave Pilkey, Darren Sands, Jessica Valenti, Nidhi Prakash, Sarah Mims, Tommy Abaro, and Sierra Velarde. All right, children, we will see you tomorrow, Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Okay, all right, this week Got is it. moving at a fair we clip. We got it, we got it, we got Fair it. clip, all right, we got this. <laughs>